All right, let's go 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, we will have the text up on the screens behind me in uh, just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room in the little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we'd invite you to take that physical one home. The reason for that's incredibly simple. We believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but chief among all those really important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. Uh, we, we believe that your life ought to be uh, understood by, defined by, made sense through the lens of his word, and um, we try to come up with creative ways to get people reading them, and so I got some ideas for you. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, take that one home, and I'll call it the best part of my day. All right, Second Peter chapter 3. So we are another week now into our series, our effort to, to look at the fruit of the Spirit, nine things that Paul lists out uh, as being present in the life and character of God's people. Uh, he lists those out in Galatians chapter 5, and that's why our subtitle for this series is What God God's people look like. We believe that these are things that, that uh, when we are walking in maturity, as we're walking in step with the Spirit, the Spirit is going to grow these things in us. It's not a completely exhaustive list of the character of God's people, but it is a pretty sufficient list to understand who we are. We're, we're not less than these things. We, we may be more than these things, but we're never less than these things. And so nine things in Galatians chapter 5, and <laughs> here's your chance to shine. Each week uh, we ask our, our people to recite them back to us, all right? Like we're in kids' Sunday school class. So who can rattle off the fruit of the Spirit? Love? Y'all, it gets more awkward the deeper we go into the list. All right, do it with me. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All right, one more time. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Some of y'all are about to get a brand new pin for your Sunday school ribbon. If you didn't understand that reference, ask an old person later. All right. All right, so we started back in week one, kind of looking at this entire list as kind of one collective group of good things, meaning that, that this, this isn't some kind of a la, cha, a la carte, pick and choose, kind of your pathway deal. Uh, it's not that I'm really passionate about the, the joy thing and really passionate about the love thing, and I don't really care about the self-control thing, and so I'm going to grow in these things but not these things. No, we said back in week one that each of these things are kind of all growing in us simultaneously, all at the, at the same time, right? And so uh, that, that when somebody is walking in maturity, walking in step with the Spirit, that these are things that are beginning to flower in us and be fruitful in us uh, as we go along and are carried along by the Spirit. But the last few weeks, the last few weeks, we've begun to kind of break this list out and begin to highlight each of these fruit in turn. All right? And so we've looked at a few already, uh, and we gave ourselves four rules to kind of help us see the fruit correctly, uh, kind of keep us on the rails or in the pathway instead of getting off into, into the bad place. And so those four rules were simple. Uh, number one, the fruit are an outworking of God's own good character in the life of his people. The, the fruit are the outworking of God's own good character in the life of his people, meaning what he already is and what he is already doing is what he is calling us to. It's not some arbitrary list of commands that he just thinks will be fun. No, he's calling us, inviting us to join him where he already is. And so growing in the fruit is, growing the fruit of the Spirit is much less about becoming a better person or more this or more that. It's much more about becoming more Christ-like. We want to look like our Savior. And that's hard to do by our own strength, right? 
In fact, I'll go ahead and be honest, that, that's impossible to, to do by our own strength. But that's also why we have rule number two. It's why it's so important. We're not the ones who own the fruit, and we're not the ones who are producing the fruit. The fruit belong to the Spirit, and the, fruit is the, one, the Spirit is the one producing it in us. And so he's pleased to grow this fruit in us as we walk with him. But we're not just sitting around doing nothing. All right, that's, I mean, that sounds like fun, I guess, but we've got a third rule. We've also been called to cultivate these fruit by practicing these fruit. We've been called to cultivate these fruit by practicing this fruit. It's, it's hard sometimes, right? Like, like, anybody just have love flowing out of you all the time? Just, just endless depths of joy in your personality. Peace that, that can't be explained, just come naturally out of you. These things are hard. It's probably going to take a lot longer than we hope to, to grow in these things. But God is good, and he will get us there. And so we can trust him as we take the next step. And we can trust him as we take the step after that, and he'll, he'll get us there. And each next step is one step closer to a functional righteousness that matches a little more closely to our already declared righteousness. That's a pretty big deal. In fact, I think it's worthy of celebrating, but, but personal benefit, while incredibly fun and good and rewarding, it's not the only thing that's going on here. We had a fourth rule, and the fourth rule was that there's always a community dynamic to these fruit. There's a benefit to others outside of us, both inside the church and outside of the church. So we got our four rules. You ready to look at the next fruit on the list? Which one is it? Patience. This is the first one that we're dealing with, where it, depending on what generation you come from and which translation of the Bible you prefer to read out of, you're going to have different vocabulary words, right? So the English Standard Version that we're using goes with patience, but if you grew up with the NIV, what does it have? Forbearance. Forbearance. And all the King James fans in the room get long-suffering. The incredibly formal-sounding one, right? <laughs> long-suffering. Sounds like a... Never mind. All right, so... There's certainly some nuance there. There's certainly some nuance between those words. They're not, those are different words for a reason, but they all kind of pretty much mean the same thing. The dictionary that I prefer to use says that patience is the capacity to accept or tolerate delay, trouble, or suffering without getting angry or upset. And that sounds like a pretty okay definition, I guess. I mean, I don't know if anybody who would really argue with it. The 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 capacity to accept or tolerate delay, trouble, or suffering without getting angry or upset. So is this, this is our first instance, our very first instance of the fruit of the Spirit being pretty much understood and, you know, kind of widely valued in our culture? You're smart enough to know better, right? Not even close. Um, if you were to Google the phrase, just just jump on the Google machine. If you were to Google the phrase, what is patience, most of the stuff that would pop out on the list that it populates uh, would be really positive results that go on and on and on about how patience is a virtue, blah, 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 blah. All right, so, but if instead, if instead you Google the phrase, is patience a good thing, the results are a lot more mixed. The results are a lot more mixed. There are some who would argue that the answer is always no. That patience stands in the way of you getting what you want. Uh, patience is the opposite of aggression, and winners are aggressive. Right? There are some who would argue that, well, of course patience is a good thing. Well, obviously it's a good thing, but only up to a certain point. 
after that, you're, you're, you're kind of a doormat and you need to learn how to say no. Right? Too much patience is a problem. You need to get a little bit better at that whole self-care thing and put your foot down. Don't let some other people boss you around like that. But then there are others, and there are actually a lot of people I've found, who would argue that patience, instead of seeing it as a good thing or a bad thing, it ought to be seen as an expedient thing. An expedient thing. A Machiavellian tool to use strategically today so that I can get what I want tomorrow. For a lot of people in our world, Patience is what you call waiting your turn for your opportunity to strike. Let your enemy have their day. Bite your tongue. Don't tip your hand. Wait for your moment. And this is where we begin to see some giant cracks in the dictionary definition of patience, I think. Um, The capacity to accept or tolerate delay, trouble, or suffering without getting angry or upset. See, if you approach the idea of patience with either a posture of not being bothered by injustice or you approach it with a posture of, you know, you're looking to scheme something, well, that definition ends up being read in a very not-so-good way, does it? Do I need to explain that both of those postures are somewhat outside of the way that the Bible would use the phrase patience? Right? So, what's... Let's go to our text then, 2 Peter. So what's our context for 2 Peter? Well, uh, 2 Peter is Peter's farewell discourse. Um, It it was written shortly before his martyrdom in Rome, uh, somewhere around 64 to 67 AD, depending on when you date some other things. And so he knows, he very much knows that his martyrdom is coming. In fact, he mentions it in the letter. Jesus revealed to me that my my days are short, all right? And so he believes that he's about to be executed, and guess what? He was about to be executed. All right, so many of you are probably likely familiar with Paul's farewell discourse, uh, 2 Timothy. You know that letter. You kind of understand the tone of that letter. He's got last words to say to somebody he loves, right? Uh, but, but rather than being addressed to his child in the faith like Paul does, Peter writes his farewell letter, his farewell discourse, to a collection of churches, right? A collection of churches. Um, and here in 2 Peter chapter 3, um, uh, we're going to get a hint at who those churches are. Uh, they, we're not told explicitly who those churches are. They're not actually addressed in the letter. Uh, but if you remember a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at a different word, we were in First Peter, and we discovered that that letter was written to a bunch of churches across northern Turkey. All right? And so we're not told that this is the same group of people, but here in chapter 3, in a second, we're going to see that he tells them that this is the second letter he's written to them. And so while we're not 100% sure, there's a pretty strong argument to make that it's probably the same group of churches. All right? So probably churches scattered across northern Turkey. And in Peter's goodbye letter, he, he wants to encourage God's people to think very, very carefully about who they're listening to. That's, that's the point. He wants them to think very carefully about who they're listening to. In other words, like not everybody claiming to be a spiritual authority deserves your attention. I don't know if you knew that. Like, has that thought ever crossed your mind? Not everybody claiming to be a spiritual authority deserves your attention. Not everybody ought to be listened to. Similar in a lot of ways to what we saw in John when he wrote 1 John. um, John, uh, We looked at a couple of weeks ago, I think it was week two in our series. Um, 
We don't know who the false teachers were uh, in the churches that, that Peter's addressing here, but based on Peter's approach, it seems, it seems that they were pretty late to the game, uh, meaning that they weren't around early on in the church, uh, but then they kind of crept in later, and they were, they were purposefully contradicting everything that the guys who had been around since Jesus was there were teaching. And so Peter's, Peter's kind of approach here, chapters 1 and 2 of Second uh, Peter, it, it's pretty much Peter going, hey, you, you probably, I don't know, just an idea, you probably ought to listen to the people who were there when Jesus said and did what Jesus said and did. Like, that's kind of his point in the first couple of chapters of 2 Peter. Hey, if you, got, if you got one group of people who are standing there when Jesus said it, and you got another group of people who say, nah, I think it meant this, maybe we ought to listen to the people who were standing there when Jesus said it. Seems wise? Seems wise to me. And so, in the swirl of false teachers, in the swirl of living in a broken world, and, and honestly, there was the dawning of some pretty heavy persecution that we are seeing. There's a reason why Peter's about to die. In the hurricane of all of that swirling around, at a level that would probably break most of us, Peter writes a letter, and he enters into the final chapter of his final letter in chapter 3, verse 1. Let's look at it. So these are Peter's last words to some churches he loves. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. All right, so Peter writes this second letter to a group that he calls beloved. He wants a, a deep and, and abiding good for them. He wants them to kind of stir them up, we're told, and remind them of what's supremely important in their lives and actions. And so what does he point to? The prediction of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. In other words, all of the promises that Jesus, the apostles, and even the Old Testament promises, uh, Old, Testament, Old Testament prophets, all of those guys, all of the promises that they made about Jesus' return, his second coming of Christ. Those, those promises floating out in the ether, they're always going to produce something in people. Those promises don't sit there as some kind of a neutral thing. They actually cause reaction in people. And I think it probably normally just causes two different possible reactions. For the Christian, the follower of Jesus, those promises are comforting and encouraging, right? They incite us towards good things. But for the non-Christian, those promises have a slightly different effect. Um, they produce scoffing, we're told. Peter says that some will follow their own sinful desires. Meaning that rather than God's word being an authority for them, the authority for them, their sinful desires are their authority and therefore God's word must be reduced and even mocked so that they can continue living in a sinful way with impunity. That's what Peter's saying. 
God's word is clear, and Jesus' imminent return, it carries with it certain consequences if that's actually going to happen. Like if Jesus really is about to show up again, then that kind of affects the way we live, right? And so the one who doesn't like that news, they cannot simply ignore that news. They must dismiss and ridicule that news. Peter clarifies the direction of that ridicule in verse 4. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. All right, so there's a common argument that gets thrown around uh, in our day, um, even today, by those who dismiss Christians and dismiss the Bible. And, and the promise is that, well, Jesus said he was coming back. And all the people around Jesus, his followers, all seem to think that it would happen in their lifetime. And I don't know if you can, can do the math. It's been about 2,000 years, and Jesus hasn't shown back up yet. Therefore, Jesus must not be who he said he was. Right? That argument is literally so old, it is mentioned in the Bible as a common rejection for the gospel. In Peter's day, it took a slightly different form. The scoffers... They point to sin existing from the dawn of creation. I mean, all the patriarchs, they're dead and gone, right? God made a lot of promises about what he would do with sin that entered into the world in the garden. I don't know if you've noticed this, but all those guys are dead and buried. We don't even know where they're at anymore. Where's, he, where's this God at? Therefore, God's promises must be void. He hadn't judged sin yet. Why should I trust anything he said? I should just do what I want then. For those who don't like the promise of Jesus' return, the fact that it hasn't been fulfilled yet is a good enough excuse, a good enough reason to go ahead and ignore it. So how should Peter answer this little accusation? He answers it verbatim in verse 5. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water and by the word of God. Verse 6, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. By, excuse me, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So Peter's response is that it's wrong to assume that these promises haven't been answered before and aren't actively being answered today. That's his response. You're right. You're absolutely right. Sin has been in the world since the very first part of the story. But then there's this other story that follows after that first story that you're not paying attention to right now. You know that one where the world is literally flooded, the deluge? You know that one where God actively judged all the sin of the world? Yeah, you're ignoring another really important part of the story. In the Greek, that word deluge, cataclizo. It's where we get our, our English word cataclysm. So that's fun. <laughs> Who's looking forward to the next cataclysm? <laughs> the, the moral of the story, the moral of the story is that God followed through on that promise. He followed through in the biggest way that you can imagine. God, God does not sit back and not act. No, he's already acted. He has promised that he will act again. He judged the world the first time with water, and there's coming a day when he will judge the world again with fire. 
Peter says that the heavens and earth as they now exist are being stored up, waiting for that judgment. But why so long to wait, though? I mean, it's been a while. You gotta admit, it's been a long time, right? God could I mean, I can point to some places where God probably ought to have acted. <laughs> it's been a long time. Why so long to wait? Why hasn't God just done it already? And Peter gives us a couple of reasons. And unfortunately, both of those reasons, when read incorrectly, end up producing bad theology. So we're going to have to walk through them. Let's take, a, let's take them in turn, starting at verse 8. Peter says this, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Hey, everybody, look, it's the most famous verse in 2 Peter. It's the one you all know. <laughs> a thousand years is as one day, right? Peter alludes to Psalm 90 here. Uh, he just kind of rips it out of, uh, out of the Psalter. Uh, it says, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Peter kind of takes that truth and flexes his apostolic authority by using it to teach a different point. But, but like, how, how in the world could that one sentence, I mean, it's a really comforting sentence, how could that one sentence about a day being like a thousand years, how could that get off the rails and be used incorrectly? By interpreting the phrase as literally as possible. As literally as possible. There were a group of people who popped up at the beginning of the 20th century, early 1900s, who looked at this verse in Psalm 90 with it, and they said that that was the key to unlocking every prophetic timeline in the Bible. Every single one of them. That every single biblical prophecy said something, if it said something lasted for a day, that that meant that that was to be interpreted as lasting a literal 1,000 years. And so if it was four days, it was 4,000 years. And so if it was seven days, it was 7,000 years. And so on and so forth and so on and so forth, right? And so they took that little formula and they started doing the math on literally everything in the Bible. And then they built their understanding of the Bible and their understanding of the end times uh, on, on the results of their little math exercise, all right? And so they, they had the Bible figured out. They had unlocked the code. Now, we, we don't have a hard stance on uh, end times things here, uh, what we would call eschatology, different views of that stuff. Um, the window of orthodoxy includes a lot of different options that I think faithful Jesus lovers and Bible readers can land in, in all those places. And so you don't have to land in a specific position in order to be a member of our church. We just need to all agree that Jesus is eventually coming back and that he's going to win, right? That's where we land on that issue. However, that does not mean that all eschatological systems are created equal, <laughs> Some of them are just really bad. Some of them are just really, really bad. Um, one of the biggest proponents of this literal thousand years view uh, was a guy named Arthur Pink. You may have heard of him before. He's a, kind of a big deal in uh, the early 20th century. He held this view early on uh, and wrote a couple of books about it. Um, but then later, he recanted that position. He actually wrote several more books and several articles, like publicly pleading with people to abandon that position. I got one of his books out there on the, the suggested readings list this, this year. It's one of his later ones. <laughs> and so it kind of made a big splash in the Christian church in the early 1900s. So if, if Peter's point is not, I mean, just assuming here, if Peter's point is not to give us some special key to interpreting biblical prophecy, then what is Peter's point? Well, it's that at the end of the day, the Lord is not like us. He is not 
like us. We might look at a thousand years and think, hey, that's a really long time. But God doesn't look at a thousand years and go, hey, that's a really long time. He's not overwhelmed by that. It's not, it's not something that he's sweating. And so, so for us to shake our fist at the heavens because God's not doing things on our feeble little timetable, well, that probably says more about our self-centered view of his actions than it does about God's ability to fulfill his promises. It says more about what I think I'm owed by this God acting in history. Standing here, I don't see God doing anything. To channel our inner Paul for a second. Who are you, old man? Who are you, old man, to think that you deserve to be there when the Lord of history brings his history to a close? That's Peter's point. Which leads Peter to his second reason God hasn't acted yet in verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter says that God hasn't pulled the trigger yet on his judgment because he is patient towards us. And we finally arrived at our keyword for the morning. Yeah! Patience. Pop quiz. How many of you think that our modern understandings of patience are what Peter's got in view here? An understanding that sees patience as problematic if you have too much of it? An understanding that thinks of patience as some kind of crafty tool to help you lie and wait until your opportunity to strike finally comes around? Are, are we all on the same page that that's not what, how we hope that God defines patience? We, we all good with that? So, so why, does, why does Peter say that God is patient towards us? Because he wants to give us lots of time and opportunity to come to repentance, we're told. He doesn't want us to perish. It's not something he enjoys. It's not something he gets off on. His heart is for us to turn to him and be reconciled to him. This is why the Father sent the Son. This is why Jesus lived sinlessly and died sacrificially in our place. And this is why the call goes out for all who have ears to hear. Repent and be reconciled to God. The kingdom of God is at hand. Listen, maybe you're here this morning and you've never done that. You never called on Jesus as Lord and Savior. Listen, today's a good day to change that. You don't have to wait for something. Do it now. The Lord has patience towards you. He calls you to himself. The Bible teaches that all people, by default, are separated relationally from God because of our sin and that we are owed his righteous punishment for that sin. But like we see this morning, like we see this morning, the Bible also teaches that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. Jesus lived, Jesus died, and Jesus rose again. And now he calls on you in this very moment to respond to him in repentance and in faith. I'd love to, I'd love to be helpful to you in that regard. You can do that this morning. You can be reconciled to Jesus. And if you want later, we can talk about it. Peter says that God is withholding his judgment for now because he is patient 
and because he is gathering his church to himself. But like I said a little while ago, that this, this reason also sometimes, sadly, uh, gets misread and results in, in bad theology. So what do I mean by that? Well, it's found in the words any and all. Any and all. So I'm looking at 2 Peter 3.9 as an argument for what would be called Christian universalism. Um, the idea that, uh, that, that no one will ultimately perish, that all will ultimately be saved. And then they do a bunch of gymnastics to try to get to that point. Uh, the biggest problem with that, a lot of problems with it, but most notably it ignores about a hundred other places in the Bible that make it very clear that not everyone will be saved. All right? So it's just a terrible system. It doesn't make any sense if you actually read more than one verse. But the universalists I think they got a verse, right? That's what's going on there. So where should we fall on how to read the words any and all? Well, even within the window of orthodoxy, there's still actually a lot of debate on that. Still quite a bit of debate on that. The most basic question to answer is this. How much does our human autonomy interact with and override God's will for us? And where you land on the answer to that question will affect how you read verse 9. Significantly. This is a historic dividing point between the Reformed tradition, otherwise known as a Calvinistic view, and uh, the Anabaptist tradition, otherwise known as an Arminian uh, view. Modern-day Baptists like us, we actually draw our history from both of those groups, which makes us complicated people. (laughs) Um, Makes us really complicated people. we got people in the room right now on both sides of this doctrinal divide, so... So does that mean that as a church, we're all just really confused and like on the brink of like getting angry about stuff? No. It means that we have a lot of grace towards those who read the scriptures differently than we do. That's what it means. Um, convictions are always important here, but this, this doctrinal stance, it doesn't, it, it doesn't live on the top shelf for us. It's important. It's just not top shelf important. Um, and so it doesn't divide our church. So what's my view then? I mean, I'm the guy who gets the paycheck, right? I got the face mic on. I'm, I, it's my job to stand up here and say, this is what the Bible says. That's not a scary thing at all, is it? What's my view? How do I read it? Well, based on Peter's tone here throughout verse 9, but all the verses leading up to verse 9, I, mean, I think it would be a gigantic mistake to assume anything other than that God is completely in charge of everything we're looking at here. I think it would be a massive mistake. The Lord of history is gathering his church and he will accomplish all that he intends to accomplish in his own time, period. That's how I read it. But if you land in a different place than me on that, we're cool. We're cool. You can buy me a cup of coffee this week and we can talk about it together. Sound like a fun thing? It doesn't sound like a fun thing. It sounds like a really fun thing to me. So Peter seeks to encourage his audience by doubling down on the promise that Jesus will return soon. And, and we, I mean, we should probably go ahead and ignore all the scoffers because I mean, they're really blind to some incredibly simple things about who God is and how he sovereignly works as Lord and King. That's, that's Peter's point. But now we can look at verse 10. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. All right, listen, we don't get to, to point to God's not acting yet as some kind of insufficiency in his ability. He's working on a divine timeline here, not our timeline, not ours. But hear me, neither should we be lazy and assume that that trigger pull won't come before we're thinking it's going to come. 
It may very well come any moment now. It might even come before I finish the sermon today. Just because he hasn't acted yet doesn't mean he won't act now. And it doesn't mean he won't act a second from now. And on and on and on we go. The thief who breaks into your house in the middle of the night, he's not going to send you a certified letter a couple of weeks out saying, hey, I'm on my way. Probably ought to get ready for me. Now you wake up when you hear the window crash. Not only does Peter tell us that the Lord will come suddenly and without warning, but he also describes that day with some spectacular detail. Did you catch that? He says that the heavens will pass away with a roar. I don't know what that sounds like. I've been in a tornado before. Sounds like a freight train. That on steroids. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. That's a scary sounding thing. We're given the picture that everything will be stripped away and laid bare, seen for exactly what it is. There will be no hiding anything. All its works will be exposed. And so in light of that reality, Peter says this in verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Verse 13, But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The confident expectation that God will do all that he has promised to do, and that when he does so, all the things that will matter will still matter, and all the things that don't matter will no longer matter. That confident expectation will directly, ha- directly affect how you live right now today. Understanding that that moment is coming, whenever it does happen to come, understanding when that moment is coming will directly affect how you live in this very second. And how does it affect us? Verse 12, we both wait and we hasten, Peter says. And this is where we can both now kind of properly define the biblical understanding of patience and how we ought to see it as a fruit of the Spirit. Patience. As biblically defined, patience is a rightly prioritized understanding of what we're waiting on. We see the world for exactly what it is and what it will one day be. And then, then we live in a way that counts on and prepares for all that God has promised to fulfill. It's not some namby-pamby posture of a pushover who needs to learn how to say no. And it's not some Machiavellian tool that we use to manipulate others to get what we want. It is a core level, eternal perspective on God and on everything else around us. It is a proper estimation of what things will still matter when the Lord's day finally gets here. And he does exactly what he says he will do. So we're not bogged down by a world that doesn't get it yet. And we're not bogged down even by, by those who would seek to mock or persecute us and God. By, by God's grace, our eyes have been opened and are being opened to seeing and accounting things the way that God sees and accounts of things. By God's grace, we are being repositioned and reoriented to a new way of seeing and making sense of the world, and that is where the fruit comes in. 
So what are our four rules? For starters, patience is not something that God just arbitrarily throws at us as a command. It is something he is and is doing. And so listen, it's, it's good news that God is patient towards me. Is anybody else in the same boat? Anybody else realizing that this morning? I, I need his perfect patience. I need it. What about rule number two? Am I able to white-knuckle my way into the spiritually mature patience? No. <laughs> some of y'all, some of y'all are dumb enough to have actually asked God for more patience. How'd that turn out for you? What was the result? What did he do? He put you in a position to practice that patience. Rule number three, right? I'm called to cultivate. So we take the next step, and then we take the next step after that, and we lean into what the Spirit is teaching us to love and value as He loves and values. But then rule number four, community dynamics. So, so how does this, the growth of godly patience in us benefit those around us? Well, in the context of the church, it, it plays out by setting our difficult relationships in their proper place. Setting them in their proper place. We don't sweat loving the difficult person because we see them with eternal eyes. Um, the world around us may see that person as someone to avoid because they're a distraction or that they're not worth their time or maybe even they see them as someone to manipulate for some other sinful purpose. But we, we genuinely see someone God is pleased to adopt into our eternal family. And we're going to spend a lot of time with them down the road. We probably ought to better get used to it like pressing into that now. But the church isn't the only place that spiritual fruit has a benefit. It also benefits those outside the church. It is precisely because we see an account of the things and people around us with the patient, eternal perspective that we carry the same posture that God does here. We don't wish that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, right? And so the call goes out. And so to those outside the church, we press through the temporary stuff. We don't let that slow us down or distract us. We press through the temporary stuff and we plead with them to be reconciled to God because we know better. We see the end for the beginning. We know better. We know it's coming. We're not distracted by the dumb stuff that doesn't matter. So we press in. He's patient. He's gathering a church for himself. He's calling us to play a role in the gathering. So let's be reconciled while there still is time. So what do we do with this this morning? How, how can we respond to God's word? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, our response is the same every single week. We repent of sin and we lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text. And this week, man, I think he's showing us that his patience towards us is bigger and deeper and sweeter and way more necessary for me than I was probably paying attention to before we opened up 2 Peter. Right? I'm wholly dependent upon his patience toward me. I'm not, I'm not standing here without it. But his patience is not just necessary, it's also unimaginably wonderful. It's also wonderful. Our king is slow to react, even as others mock him for doing so. Even as I sometimes begin to doubt him because of my tiny understanding of how he ought to do things. 
He's good like that. So our response this week probably needs to take the shape of celebrating his good patience. We are beneficiaries inviting others to see and celebrate his goodness. But what if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet? It, it, it's simple. We invite you to see and celebrate his patience. It's that, it's that simple. I'd love to be helpful to you. Repent of your sin. Trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. We can talk about it after class. And so I'm, I'm game for that. I'll be done front here if you want somebody to talk to. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe it's by formally joining our church family, or maybe it's by uh, being obedient to Jesus' command to be baptized, or maybe it's time to finally say yes to his call to take the message of his patience and reconciling love to some faraway place. However God's calling you to respond this morning, I'm going to pray, we're going to sing, let's all respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Second Peter. Thank you that... Thank you that your patience towards me is so infinitely bigger and deeper and better than I have any sense of. And your patience towards us, and your patience towards those who don't know you yet. And so God, for, for our church family, would you help us rest in the goodness of your patience? But also, would you call us to action by the goodness of your patience? You said, would you light a fire under, under us to understand that there are things that matter and there are things that don't on an eternal scale? Help us value the things that do. Work diligently towards those ends. Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Open eyes to see and ears to hear. Would you call men and women to your kingdom today? We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.